No one wants to be on the wrong side of history, right? I mean, like, even if you don't, if you don't fear that in yourself, you have this, this recognition that it's been weaponized against you, right? Like, if you, if you vote for this candidate or that candidate, you're on the wrong side of history. If you, if you go for this policy or you stand on, on this idea, you're on the wrong side of history. Even our kids, they use it against us. Right? If you're a parent, you know this. They, your kids say to you, well, when I'm a mommy or a daddy, what I'll do, right? Or they have that little thing of, well, you'll be sorry. <laughs> I'm not sure how many of you have seen one of my favorite movies, A Christmas Story. You know that movie? There's this, this scene in the movie that I, I just think is hysterical where all of a sudden the little boy, Ralphie, is, is daydreaming after having a piece of soap put in his mouth or saying a dirty word. Uh, he, he's daydreaming about returning to his parents. And when he comes back to his parents, they, they, they see that he has become blind. And they find out that, that he, he became blind because they put soap in his mouth. They'll be sorry. They'll see that they were on the wrong side of history. You see, from the, the time that we're, we're children, we have this desire in us to be proven right. The trope about the, the right side of history is definitely, it's, it's overused. But I think all of us would agree here today that there is such a thing as being on the wrong side of history, right? Like, I hope... No one here today would disagree that the Nazi party in World War II was on the wrong side of history. Those in the U.S. who were protesting the racial integration of schools, wrong side of history. Our passage today takes place as it seems to some that the right side of history is about to be revealed. If you've got a Bible, please open it up to Luke 19. We're going to really have our nose in the text this morning, so you'll want to have your eyes there. If, you, if you'd like to use the Pew Bible, the Bible in front of you, that blue book, you can find our text on page 878. While you're doing that, I'm going to pray. If you're already there, would you pray along with me? Lord, speak. Show us how you divide history. Help us to see what your word says is, is true and not simply what we want to be true. Challenge us. Change us this morning to see as you would have us to see, to think as you would have us think and do as you would have us do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So those who are, are with Jesus right now in, in Luke 19 have seen those with paraplegia leap and dance, the blind see wonders, the sick healed, the demonized freed, the dead raised, and simultaneously they've seen their teacher tested and maligned. The religious leaders think Jesus' disciples have made a mistake by following him, and now they're in the city of Jericho, about to travel to the capital city of Israel, Jerusalem. And they firmly believe that it's about to be revealed that they are on the right side of history. Look at verse 11 with me in Luke 19. That's where we're starting. 
It says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. You see, Jerusalem was only a six-hour walk from Jericho, and if Jesus was truly the Messiah, the anointed king, then it would only make sense that as they get closer, he would go and find a white horse to ride in on and declare himself king. They believe that their vindication is so close they can taste it. But Jesus knows their thoughts and seeks to correct their false expectations of an immediate kingdom with a story. Look with me at verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, that seems pretty strange to us today, but it wasn't actually all that strange in the time of Jesus. Herod the Great, you remember Herod? He was the the evil villain from the Christmas story. He made a journey just like this in 40 BC to request from Mark Antony that he would be given the title of king. And when he died, his son, Archelaus, made the same exact journey, hoping that that he would be called king like his daddy. But we'll get to that in a moment. Verse 13, calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. Now, you might be wondering, what's a mina? Well, it's about three months' salary. On average today, that'd be about $12,000 in the U.S., each of them to to do business with. The expectation is simple. The nobleman wants them to put the mina to work, to open nobleman's bakery, nobleman's rug store, nobleman's tunics, and maybe even a Barnes and Nobleman. (laughs) Invest what he's given them and grow his brand. Verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. You see, this is where we get back to Herod's son, Archelaus, who I mentioned earlier. You see, when Herod died, Archelaus went to Caesar Augustus to be made king, but before he even got there, before he got to Rome, the Jewish people had sent a delegation of 50 men to go and protest, to say, no, 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 we don't want this guy. Remember that whole thing? His dad killed all the Hebrew boys. Like, he, he's just not one of, he's not one of our people. We, we don't want him to be king. In the end, Caesar Augustus compromised so that no one was happy. Archelaus was allowed to rule as ethnarch, but not as king until he earned it, which he never did. So you see, as Jesus tells this story, his listeners are bringing all sorts of things to mind, especially because they're currently in Jericho, where Herod's palace was situated. Nevertheless, the nobleman's story here that Jesus tells ends quite differently from the story of Archelaus. Keep looking with me at verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more, a thousand percent profit. Awesome. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas, 500 percent profit. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. 
Then another came and said, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Now let's pause here again. There are ten servants in this story, but we only get to see three of them up close. The first two are called servants, but the second one, interestingly, is, is not called that at all. Do, do you notice it? It just says, another. The word here is heteros. Some commentators say that we might better translate this saying, then a, another kind came, another who wasn't a servant at all. If you see, this is an important for understanding the parable. Jesus is dividing history here. He says when the king comes back, there are two types of people, the kind that invests the mina and the kind that puts it in a napkin. If that doesn't strike you as problematic, think for a moment about what the last thing you put in a napkin was. And he tells the nobleman, he did this because he was afraid. To paraphrase what the king says, if you look there with me, to paraphrase, the so-called servant says, listen, I, I know what you're like. If I lost the money, you'd beat me silly. And if I made a profit, you'd just take it for yourself and leave me nothing. Now, I mean, that's pretty bold. It takes a lot of chutzpah to accuse your boss of these poor morals especially after he's proven himself to be quite the opposite with the first two servants. Not surprisingly, the nobleman doesn't accept this response. Look back at verse 22. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. Do you see the division there? It's a new category, not faithful, but wicked. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. Now, some, some background for this, if you don't know, it was actually illegal to charge interest in Israel. So what he's saying is basically, you think I'm some kind of mobster who plays by my own rules? Fine. You didn't want to risk a beating or needless sweat. Well, then why didn't you go for a guaranteed moneymaker, something that would take no work, a simple nobleman's bank account? The servant claims that his excuse is that he was afraid. But in reality, it, the, the issue was not that he feared his master too much. It was that he feared him too little. It's not that he knew him too well. It's that he didn't know him at all. You see, the servant's choice had nothing to do with the personality of the master. It had everything to do with the person of the nobleman. He didn't want his name where his master's was. He didn't want it to be associated with him just in case the delegation was successful and the nobleman didn't come back to be king. He was willing to be a, a fair-weather fan, but not so much when the, the heat was on. He'd been reading the newspaper. He had seen the polls, didn't seem in favor of the noblemen. He turned on Fox News or MSNBC, and they were saying the same thing. Noblemen's probably not coming back. He read the columns in the Wall Street Journal about the noblemen and decided to simply play it safe. He thought he'd just be neutral. I'll put my mina 
in a napkin, and that way no one is angry at me. No one can say that I was on the wrong side of history because I'm staying out of it. No one can say I was complicit with the delegation or the nobleman's servants. I'm safe. But the story here that Jesus tells tells us that there is no such thing as safety and neutrality when it comes to kingdoms and eternity. Look at verse 24. And he, that being the nobleman, said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said, Lord, he has ten minas. The, the nobleman speaks to the servants and they're astonished by what seems unfair. And so he explains, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. These are sobering words. You see, the servant thought he was avoiding complicity by hiding his mina in a handkerchief. But in doing so, he became complicit with those trying to prevent the king's influence and kingdom. And our text shows us that that complicity must have consequences. So as the disciples are headed into Jerusalem, about to experience Palm Sunday, which we'll talk more about next week, what are they to take away from this story? Jesus, who is of most noble birth, is going to go away. But the king is coming back. You see, Jesus went to Jerusalem, and he, he didn't come riding on a white horse, but a donkey. He didn't go and get a, a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. He went on to a mountain not to be coronated, but to be crucified. But the king is coming back. We know this because the disciples thought that Jesus would need to be made a king like Herod. They thought that the faraway country was Rome and that the, the kingdom he was after was the land of Israel. And listen, if it's just Israel, then all you need to do is get coronated by or defeat the Romans. But the kingdom that Christ was after extends far beyond Palestine. Jesus wasn't after a mere 260 miles of land. He was after the universe. He wasn't coming just to reconcile a nation. He was coming to reconcile the nations. And so the faraway country could not be Rome or Jerusalem. It had to be heaven. Jesus had to die to go to that faraway country where he could be coronated. And the Gospels tell us that through his resurrection from the dead— we can know that he was, in fact, coronated as king. And so, if Jesus is coming back as king, if he's currently in the far away country, but the king is coming back, what does this parable have to teach us? I've got three takeaways to preach to my own soul this morning, and hopefully you can preach them to your own soul, too. Here's the first one. The king is coming back. And so our greatest need is not fruitfulness, it's faithfulness. 
You see, a lot of people read this parable and they, they think that it's kind of saying the same thing as Matthew 25. Maybe you know that parable, the parable of the talents. And the two stories have a lot of similarities, but they're different in some important ways. For, for one, the, a talent is very different than a mina. It's worth a lot more. In Matthew 25, the master is simply going away on a long journey. In our passage, Luke 19, he's going to be made king. In Matthew 25, each of the servants, each of the three servants, is given uh, a different number of talents based on their ability. In Luke 19, ten servants are given the exact same amount, a mina each. You see, Matthew 25 is a parable about fruitfulness, but Luke 19 is a parable about faithfulness. Yes, there are rewards in this passage for fruitfulness, But we need to note the source of the fruitfulness. You see, in the parable of the talents, Matthew 25, the key phrase of the good servants is, I have earned. And there's nothing wrong with that. Jesus tells us that we are to produce fruit. In fact, if you're not producing fruit, you may not be a fruit tree. But in Luke 19, fruitfulness is not the main issue. Here, when the servants are called to give an account, they don't talk about what they've earned. They don't brag about their investment strategies. They say what his mina has done. Do you see that in verse 16 and 18? Look there with me. Underline it if you need to. He says, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. Lord, your mina has made five minas more. It's the mina that does the work. We're simply called to be faithful with the mina. It's a metaphor for what God has given to all of us, all of his people, the word of truth, the gospel. Martin Luther, he understood this. Yeah, listen, big fruit for him. He posted the 95 theses on uh, the the church door of Wittenberg, and that's often considered to be the great catalyst of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation in Europe. Big fruit. But hear me, he didn't see that as his great work. Rather, when he was asked, like, how would he talk about his life work, he responded in this way. He said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, the word weakened and inflicted losses upon its opponents. I did nothing. The word did everything. And how does the king reply to these these servants in verse verse 17? And he said to them, look there with me, well done, good servant, because you've been incredibly hardworking. No, doesn't say that. Well done, because you've never taken a day off. No. He says, because you have been faithful. You see, that's what it comes down to. That's what is needed most, faithfulness. Are we willing to stand with his mina? Are we willing to let his mina do its work? Or will you hide it in a napkin? Will you so compartmentalize your life so that Jesus is only for Sundays from 10 to noon and occasionally 15 minutes on weekdays. If you can't say amen, say ouch. Will you see Jesus for who he is? As one who wants to work in and through you and reward your faithfulness like the first two servants? 
Or will you view him like the other kind of servant? The servant who just like Adam and Eve said, he probably doesn't have my best interest at heart. I've got to protect myself and find my own way. Like, let's not confuse this here. The servant was, was not incompetent. He was complicit. The sin of the servant was not uh, that he was ill-fitted for the task or that he wasn't a gifted entrepreneur. His sin was not unfruitfulness. It was unfaithfulness. And listen, I know, friends, some of you are struggling right now as you hear this because you don't see fruit in your life, and you're like, well, maybe I'm not faithful, right? You're not, you're not seeing it. Family isn't following Jesus the way that you hoped, that friend that you've been reaching out to still doesn't seem any closer to the kingdom. But yet, you have these friends who every time they're at small group, they're like, yep, another one saved, another one saved. You're just seeing fruit after fruit. Their fruit has fruit. Can I encourage you for a moment? Listen, the, sen- the second longest book in our Bibles, the longest book that's written by just one author, was written by a man who by worldly standards would be considered to be one of the greatest failures, Jeremiah. He didn't free his people like Moses. He didn't crown a king like Samuel. He didn't perform miracles like Elijah. He died without any tangible accomplishments. History remembers him as the sad old guy who sat on the ruins of Jerusalem and wept You might call his work fruitless by our standards, but we can't ignore that for 40 years, God kept choosing Jeremiah to speak through. Just that phrase, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, appears 32 times in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was faithful, and and faithfulness is fruit. Interestingly, when the Apostle Paul writes of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, nowhere does he mention success? Fruit is, is faithfulness. Our greatest need is, is, fruit, is not fruitfulness, it's faithfulness. And secondly, our greatest call is not awareness, it's readiness. I mean, get into the mind of the servant with me, if you would. You can imagine that he's checking his newsfeed daily, waiting for updates from Rome. When things got scary, maybe he even took out his mina and, and looked at it and examined it. He's, he's nominal. He takes the name servant and has the mina, but it doesn't touch his life. It's kept in the drawer. He knows about the master, but he doesn't know the master. He led a small group, maybe for some other servants, on the the signs of the nobleman's return, but he wasn't ready for it. Over the past few years, I feel like one of the most common church questions that I regularly hear is, are we in the end times? I mean, I get it. Between COVID-19, inflation, the war with Ukraine and Russia, and like murder hornets. Do you remember murder hornets? Like people are wondering, is this the end? And so you've got bloggers, YouTubers, and TV preachers that were putting out 20 reasons Jesus is coming back in 2020 which became 21 reasons Jesus is coming back in 2021. And now I'm sure it's 22 reasons, right? Like they, they just keep, the numbers just keep coming. They find more reasons. Maybe you're here today and you're, you're wondering that thing. Are we in the end times? Guess what? I come with an answer today. Yes. And we've been in them for over 2,000 years. From the moment of Jesus' ascension into heaven, we have been in the end times, and we're called to live like it. 
We're told to, to live ready, to be ready for Christ to come like a thief in the night. Some of you are unaware, some of you are aware, but you're not ready. You know a lot of theology, but you don't know the theos of that ology. The parables of Jesus are filled with warnings that, that we might not actually be ready when we think we are. We think we know Jesus when in actuality we're just aware of him. We know a lot about him. Listen, it's good to care about good theology. But when you care more about the theology than the theos, you have a problem. When you care more about the timing of Jesus than the heart of Jesus, you're only a step away from that wicked servant who is twiddling his thumbs waiting for the return. To borrow from one of our former senior pastors, don't be overly concerned about which way the Antichrist is going to part his hair. (laughs) Hear me. The more important question, the question of this parable is how will you be parted by Jesus? Are you faithful or wicked? What kind are you? Are you ready or are you aware? Martin Luther, who I mentioned earlier, was once asked what he would do if he knew that Jesus was coming back this night, and he said, I would plant a tree and pay my taxes. What's he saying? He said, I'd I'd simply continue to be faithful. You see, an awareness mentality says, oh no, Jesus is coming back. Look busy. But an attitude of readiness is what Eugene Peterson called a long obedience in the same direction. It's faithfully being the church. I mean, we say this every Sunday, right? Be the church, be the church. But what does it mean? It means going out into the world and being complicit with King Jesus, displaying our King in everything that we do, not necessarily opening a Christian coffee shop, fine if you want to do that, But rather, if you're a coffee maker, you're making the best coffee that serves your community well, loves your customers well, and your coworkers with the love and words of Jesus. It's not necessarily passing out tracts. It's living as a tract with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Passing out tracts or preaching the gospel doesn't make you faithful. Plenty of unloving, angry, and unkind people do that. That's not faithfulness. It's not people seeing how aware you are of of theological and cultural issues and displaying what a good gatekeeper of the faith you are. Good, you know some theological terms. That's awesome, really. But do you live good theology? Do you live like Jesus came into the world to save you? (laughs) A sinner like you. I mean, listen, no one knows how bad I am. I'm really bad. But no one knows how bad you are. Readiness is is recognizing our unworthiness and serving with a radical faithfulness. It's what the the great 15th century British poet George Herbert meant when he, he wrote this poem called The Elixir that I love. Here's a section of it. He says, teach me, my God and King, in all things thee to see, and what I do in anything to do it as for thee. A servant with this clause makes drudgery divine, who sweeps a room as for thy laws, makes that in the action fine. You see, readiness transforms even the mundane into something divine. Herbert says, sweeping a room, if it's done as a task for the Lord, not only makes the room clean, but it cleans the act of sweeping. This is readiness. And our greatest call, 
Are you ready? Our greatest need is not fruitfulness, it's faithfulness. Our greatest call is not awareness, it's readiness. And one last thing I want to preach to my soul this morning and to yours. Our greatest problem is not sin. It's God. I don't know about you, but I'm a people person. I love talking to people. In the past few days, I was actually on three airplanes because of a conference, and I was super jealous of our youth pastor, Pastor Justin, because on the way there, he got the middle seat. I'm like, I want to talk to people. I know I'm that guy on the airplane that all of you are like trying to avoid. Forgive me. But no, l- listen, listen, I can, take, I can take cues. If you don't want me to talk to you, I'll leave you alone. But here's the thing. I love talking to my barber. I love talking to my Uber driver. I love hopping on college campuses and having conversations with students. I love that I get paid for that. (laughs) I love learning what they think about different things and why it is that they they think the things that they do. And one of my favorite questions to ask, especially if I'm on an airplane, is what do you think our world's greatest problem is? Some talk about climate change. Others will say political division poverty, increasing immorality, however it is that they want to define that. And quite a few times after the person has shared their thoughts, if we've already talked about the fact that I'm a pastor, they say something like, oh, but I, I know you'll say that our greatest problem is sin. They're, they're typically caught off guard when I say no. Yes, sin separates us from God, but not sinning doesn't bring us to him. You see, this was the mistake of the wicked servant. He believed that by not joining the delegation, he was fine. He thought he was neutral. He thought he was complicit with no one. But the problem with this thinking is that it's incredibly individualistic. It disregards sin's systemic nature. You see, two kingdoms are constantly at war, and the role of the servants was to prepare the world for the new kingdom of their master by faithfully investing his mina everywhere they went. And if they don't invest what they've been given influence over, the kingdom doesn't grow. The influence of the opposition continues to to gain ground. Neutrality seeds influence and territory. That's how war works. Whether you protest, invest, or stay home, everyone is complicit with somebody. You're either complicit with the king or complicit with the status quo. Simply not being part of the delegation is not enough. Just because you're not actively opposing the king doesn't mean you're not on his side. Come back to my question for a moment. Everything that that people say humanity's greatest problem is, all of those problems assume some level of responsibility, right? Like if you think it's a a big problem, uh, political division, there is a side or at least a group of people that you think should be held responsible. If it's poverty, someone needs to be held responsible. If it's increasing immorality, someone has to be held responsible. We all have this like kind of innate feeling that someone should be held to account for what's wrong in the world. And I believe that that feeling is truly God-given. We crave justice where we perceive injustice. Nevertheless, when we read verse 27, everyone's uncomfortable right? The king says, as for these enemies of mine, those who did not want me to rule over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. I mean, that feels a step too far. We we don't like it because the, the king doesn't just judge those who are really, really, really bad. 
He judges all those who are complicit. The text says the, the enemies are anyone who didn't want his rule, not just those who served in the delegation, but those who were complicit in their silence and in action. And now we're scared. Because part of what it means to live in a broken world is that we are constantly, every single one of us, complicit in all kinds of evil. We're fine with the so-called really bad people getting justice, but if it's true justice, it can't be partial. If God is going to judge injustice, we know that we've all played a role. If God is going to judge the wrongs of this world, he can't just judge uh, when, we are, when, when people say evil things. He, he must judge when we, we don't speak true things. He can't just judge evil. He has to judge silence in the face of evil. If God is going to judge injustice and evil, then we all have a problem. And that problem is God. I mean, just look at the news or your Twitter feed or pretty much any YouTube comment section. You'll find brokenness, pain, and evil. And there's a desire in each of us to, to see that be made right, for justice to have its day. Sin is not our greatest problem. Sinful humanity's greatest problem is a God who is full of righteous justice. Listen, our greatest need is not fruitfulness, it's faithfulness. Our, our greatest call is not awareness, it's readiness. Our greatest problem is not sin, it's God. Which brings me back to the Mina. You remember how Jesus said in verse 26, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And you might remember I, I said that, that Jesus is quoting himself there from what he said in Luke 8, 16 to 18 about the lamp. You see, by, by using this phrase again, Jesus is telling us that the Mina and the lamp are symbolizing the same thing. See, the light shows the way out of darkness. And the mina was likewise meant to put the nobleman king, the light of the world, on display. Friends, the, the light and the mina are meant to point us to a king who not only brings justice on the unjust, but invites us to turn to him so that the justice we deserve would be taken on himself. The beautiful mystery and miracle of the gospel is not only that God will take all things right in his kingdom. He's not just going to make all things right, but he's going to take all things wrong in us and pay the price himself. You see, our, our greatest problem is God, and a God-sized problem needs a God-sized solution. Again, Jesus says, as for these enemies of mine, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Make no mistake, that's me. That's you. You see, if we think of sin as just a bunch of little mistakes, then we don't get this. But when we recognize with Scripture that we're not just people who missed the mark, who made a couple of oopsies, that we're actually enemies of God, rebels, then we can understand the absolute beauty 
of what Jesus does by laying down his life and being slaughtered on our behalf. See, God is our greatest problem, and he is the only solution. In the end, history will be divided into two sides. Which side will you be on? See, Jesus always lived on the right side. From eternity past and through his 33 years here on earth, he was on the right side. Nevertheless, the delegation from the Pharisees went to Herod and Pontius Pilate saying, we don't want him to be our king. He is not our king. Don't even call him that. They wanted him relegated to the wrong side of history. And he willingly went to that side, our side, not to stay, but to be slaughtered for us so that we could come back to the right side with him. If only we would turn from our complicity with this world and believe on him. He died for for rebels like me to be made right and brought into his kingdom. The question for us is, will we put his name and his mina on our ledger? Will we let the light shine? Will we be complicit with this world or will we be complicit with the king? Listen, I don't know how many days until it'll happen. It could, it could come today, tomorrow, or a thousand years from now. But the king is coming back on a white horse next time. And then we'll all know if we were on the right side of history. Which side will you be on? Would you pray with me? king of the universe. History is being divided and will be divided. We look to you now, asking that we might have assurance of the side that we're on. For those with us today who are just not sure, they're exploring, they're figuring it out, they're, they're trying to figure out what, what to do with, with what it is that they've received, this mina that, that, that's laid out in front of them. Lord, We pray that they would be captured by the beauty, the beauty of the gospel, and that they might join us in being complicit with you, O wonderful King. We pray in the name of our returning King, Jesus. Amen.